Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. I'm going to start with a little bit of a quiz because one of the things that Nick goes on and on about is how smart the people here are at Mercy Commons. He says, yeah, God's doing wonderful things in Thailand, I'm sure, great things at Southlands and all the advanced churches. But nobody is as cultured and as smart as the people here at uh, what used to be Southlands, Southlands Fullerton, now Mercy Commons. Um, so I'm going to do a little quiz where I'm going to give you a little bit of a line, and then you guys kind of finish it, okay? okay? Here we go. In the beginning. God created. Ah, very good. All right, this next one is more of a cultural reference. A long time ago in a galaxy. Hey. Actually, there were more answers to that one than the Bible one. Okay. Here we go. Now, the, this next one is from literature. It was the best of the times. It was the... Great. Where is it from, though? Who knows? Wow. Wow. Karin Saltis. Amazing. Outstanding. Okay. All right. This one for the people that are like, oh, my gosh, what is he talking about? I never heard of those things. Who lives in a pineapple under the sea? All right, very good. Now you guys are paying attention. Now I'm going to do one that maybe you guys aren't going to be able to finish. Okay, here we go. The beginning of the gospel of. The beginning of the gospel of. Okay. Um, Actually, a very critical for us as Christians in the Gentile world, um, this, this little line. Um, and I'm going to ask you guys to open up your Bibles. Mark 1, verse 1. And I'm just going to be preaching out of one, one verse today, short verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Many of you guys have probably read the Gospel of Mark and probably read this passage, this particular verse, and moved right past it. Of course, it's the beginning of the Gospel or the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what this is. But actually, in in a similar way to the lines that I was stating before, that had cultural significance and there was a familiarity and there was an awareness. Actually, when the first century uh, people in the Roman Empire heard this line, there would have been a familiarity, there would have been a recognition of what this passage was, but they would have been shocked at how the latter portion of this verse was completed. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually this phrase, the beginning of the gospel of, was synonymous not with Jesus, but it was actually synonymous with Augustus Caesar, whom the Roman Empire viewed as the Savior. And there was this unprecedented time of prosperity and peace uh, among, for, the, um, for the people in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. It was about a 200-year period that started in 27 AD, uh, BC and ended in about 180 AD. And as the Roman Empire was conquering the known world, what they would do, one of the things that they would do is say, hey, look, you know what? We have so dominated you. We have so conquered you. We're so superior to you guys in every way. We're even going to change the way that you guys date things. And we're going to say that the birthday of Augustus Caesar is the start 
of the calendar for the known world. And so there was these inscriptions that were placed in all the places where they would conquer it. And it said something to this effect, the birthday of the god Augustus, who was described as the savior and the Caesar, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. The beginning of the good tidings. And they used the same phrase that we use for gospel, evangelion. The beginning of the gospel of Augustus Caesar. And this was particularly perplexing for people hearing this, especially for the Romans who didn't believe in Jesus, because they're saying, wait a second, we represent this empire. We're the Romans. And there's this guy named Caesar who has conquered everybody and has brought all this peace and prosperity. And you're saying that the person that we defeated and put on a cross is the actual savior of the world? That somehow there's good that's going to come out of somebody that we crucified and made an example of. And not only that, we're taking his followers and we're throwing them at wild dogs. We're throwing them in the Colosseum at lions. And we're actually using them as torches. They would light Christians on fire. You're saying, wait a second, Jesus, that's the beginning of the good news? That's what you guys believe is the Savior. There was tremendous persecution uh, at that time. And yet, despite this discrepancy, and the Gospel of Mark was something that was written by, by Mark, and it was Peter's gospel that he preached in the Gentile world, into the Roman world. And, you know, the amazing thing was, despite the fact that it was very clear for the people in this known world, in the Roman Empire, to believe that actually Augustus Caesar was the Son of God, and not Jesus, and if you looked at all of the fruit that was visible to the eye, it seemed like Jesus is powerless. He didn't do anything. He's just a defeated person. But actually, from this point on, people started to come to faith in droves until the point when actually Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So how does that make sense? How does that make sense when here's this amazing political and military leader who's conquered the known world and is bringing this unprecedented prosperity and then a, a, a humble carpenter who has been crucified on the cross and been made an example of, and yet people are coming to believe that actually the real gospel, the real good news, the real good tidings come from Jesus and not from Caesar. And this is the thing that uh, I want to say is that what was going on was that there was a greater spiritual reality that confounded the physical reality. So I'm going to say that again. There was a greater spiritual reality that confounded the physical reality. And actually the climax of Mark, the main point of, of the gospel of Mark is Mark 15, 39. And it says, when the centurion who was subject to Caesar and who had a hand in crucifying Jesus, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. This was an inflammatory statement. He was engaging in treason. He was engaging in blasphemy, according to their religion, that someone other than Augustus Caesar was actually the Son of God. And this is something that a Roman soldier recognized. And I just want to ask you this, this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he someone like Caesar who is going to affect things in a way that in terms of the physical realities of your life, things will come into his order that there will be good tidings and good news in terms of that? Or 
Is he about something that is a greater reality, of something that is of greater importance, something that's invisible, something that's eternal, something that's spiritual, rather than the things that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands? And so, I uh, actually didn't have a lot of notice uh, to, to preach uh, here today. Um, it was just a couple of days ago, Nick messaged me. I had told him, hey, I was originally planning on, you know, coming here last week, but wasn't able to. And so I said, hey, Nick, sorry, we're not going to be able to join you guys for worship this week. We'll go next week. And then Nick send me this, sends me this Voxer. And, you know, we uh, exchange messages from time to time, and most of them are pretty insignificant. Um, but Nick used this phrase. He said, by God, Dan, I feel like you're supposed to preach for us today. And I thought, that's interesting. God didn't tell me anything. Um, but I thought about it. I prayed. I said, yes, okay. And then I began asking the Lord, is there something that you want me to come and communicate to the people of Mercy Commons? Is there something that you want me to share? And this is the prophetic encouragement that God has put on my heart to encourage you guys with. Because this past year, 2020, or last year, it's been pretty crazy. It's been pretty insane. And from seeing things from afar in Thailand, all I have access to, social media, the news outlets, and it looks like America is a complete disaster from afar. And all of us over there are wondering, what in the world is going on? You guys are like the dominant uh, Roman Empire of today, and you're supposed to be an example and leading us in these things, and you just, and all of these things related to race, all of these things related to the politics, the reaction to COVID, we're just sitting back wondering, what the heck is going on in America? According to the physical realities that are visible to the eye, it's been a time, and it's been like that in Thailand as well, but it's been a time where you're like, what is going on? It just doesn't make sense. And I feel like the encouragement that God wants me to give you guys is this particular phrase, don't place too much of your identity on the things of this world. Don't place too much of your identity in the things of this world. So just on this topic of identity, I found this definition. I did a significant amount of research, just went straight to Google search and said, what's identity? And this is the first thing that popped up. So there are all these sophisticated algorithms, apparently, AI, machine learning, I don't understand. But apparently, people seem to really like this definition of identity. And it says, identity is who we, you are, the way you think about yourself, the way you are viewed by the world, and the characteristics that define you. I mean, I know it's just the Google search that produced this thing, but I think it's quite profound. I'm not saying this is the true definition of identity, but there's something that rings true about this. Identity is who you are, the way you think about yourself, the way you are viewed by the world, and the characteristics that define you. And I want to ask this question, friends. What's your identity? And for some of us, kind of the way that we want to define ourselves matters more. For some of us, the characteristics that we carry along with us, things that we were born into, define us more than other things. Sometimes, sadly, um, we're not free to be who we really feel like we should be able to be. And the world imposes kind of our identity onto us, things that we don't necessarily want to receive, but that's how things get defined. And I think we know as, as good Christians that we have an identity that supersedes all other aspects of our characteristics, the things that people say about us, the way that they view us, 
the way that we even feel about ourselves. There is an identity that is even greater than that in Ephesians 2, um, 6 to 7, that God made us alive together with Christ. By, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's, there's this greater spiritual reality that is more important than our physical reality. Yes, I am uh, an Asian male, about five foot ten, maybe, with these shoes on, certainly. I'm a lawyer, became a pastor, I'm a missionary. I have a certain amount of money in my bank account, less than I used to. I drive a certain kind of car. There are all these things. I'm a husband. I'm a father. There are all these things that kind of define me. But the thing that is most important about my identity is the fact that I am seated in Christ in heavenly places. This is the greater spiritual reality. That there is this new Jerusalem that's already there. It's in existence. And Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's already reigning. On the cross, he has subjected everything else under his feet. And he is ruling and reigning. And there is this beautiful, perfect reality in this new Jerusalem that's already there. I am already there. I'm positioned there. There's nothing about my eternal state that's going to change the fact that I'm going to be able to enjoy that reality and that identity forever and ever. And I am simply in a time period of waiting. Waiting for that reality that is already there in New Jerusalem under King Jesus to come and become the reality of this earth. There's this new Jerusalem. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which is why when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray that things will be the same here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is the reality. But, you know, in my day-to-day interactions and the things that I see in the news, when I hear all this horrible news, and there are things that affect me in terms of my identity. Christians don't necessarily have a very good name in this culture anymore. Because of my race, there are things that I see in the news that kind of touch upon that. And so you remember this aspect of your reality? Remember this aspect of your reality? Doesn't that bother you what's happening? And it's easy for me to get distracted and for me to lose the sense of, oh my gosh, I am in Christ and I'm seated in heavenly places with him, in this amazing reality that is the new Jerusalem, and I become just an earthly person. I become fixated on the things that are physical, the things that are tangible, the things that I can see, the things that I can touch. And it causes me to lose focus. It causes me to veer away from the things that God has called me to. It causes me to emphasize things that God isn't calling me to emphasize. And all of us who are Christians, there is this ultimate reality, there is this ultimate identity that we have that is ours that can never be taken away, that is so much more significant than the other aspects of who we are as human beings, things that we feel about ourselves, things that other people try to impose upon us. Amen? So recently, speaking of identity, I have decided to go plant-based. Do we have any plant-based people here? Come on, we got Southern California. All right. Yes, yes. Flexitarian. Okay, awesome. Yeah. 
So uh, I've decided to go plant-based, and it's primarily because of health reasons. I have a family history of diabetes and um, heart disease. And my brother had a scare related to his heart later, uh, late last year. And, you know, he went plant-based. He lost a ton of weight and is just so much happier and healthier. I don't think it's for everybody, but I felt convicted by God to try to pursue this. And you might see me next year just with the big giant beef rib in my hand. But at least for the time being, I'm going to try this. But you know what's interesting is that when you decide to go plant-based, all of a sudden, you become a pariah to some. You show up in people's homes, and we've been invited out to eat. We've been going to uh, people's homes to eat. And they're just, I, and I'll tell them, hey, I, I'm open to eat, eating everything, and I don't want to be that guy. But I'm vegan. Do you guys have any vegan options? And, you know, people are polite. They'll say, okay, that's fine. Uh, yeah, we'll get some salad. We'll get some tortilla chips, whatever it is. Um, and then you just kind of feel like a little bit of an outsider. You know, people are eating their steak and seafood, and you're just eating your leafy greens and you know, you try to say, oh, this is really good. It's just as good as that. But the reality is I, I love meat, and it's not the same. But you know what's, what's interesting is this is an identity that I, or a characteristic that I've taken on just in the last couple of months, right? But you'll be surprised at how quickly it becomes like an important thing, you know? You go to a restaurant, and they don't have any vegan options. You're like, come on, bro. It's like 2021. You don't have any vegan options. You're in Southern California. It doesn't make any sense. What's that? That's not true, Nick. Stop lying. You're a man of God. You shouldn't be lying. There are many of us, and we're people too, and we have rights. But it's so interesting that when you go plant-based, you start, like, nitpicking things, you know? So, like, you look down on vegetarians. You're, you're like, hey, you know what, though? Like, taking eggs from chickens, that's not that much different than taking meat, flesh from them, you know? You know how bad eggs are? You know how bad dairy is, you know? And then what's funny is that you'll go to places and you're looking for the vegan options because plant-based as a definition really isn't as popular or hasn't been around as long as vegetarian or vegan. But you go to a restaurant and there are these vegans and then you, you interact with vegans or you see YouTube videos of vegans and these people are a little bit kind of really serious about being vegan. And they make it a moral thing. Like, for me, I'm doing it for health. I'm glad that it might have a positive impact on the environment. For them, they're like, meat is murder. How can you? And they're like, oh, something actually touched an animal at one point. Or an animal kind of had some shade put on this leafy green. Then I'm going to spit it out because I'm morally op opposed. And so as a plant-based person, it's weird. You know, meat eaters are savages. Vegetarians are just stupid and uninformed. Vegan people are just, you guys are just too radical and care about something that is not that important. It's so interesting how just something so as insignificant as diet can cause us to have these types of passionate responses, right? So, with uh, Nick being here, I think uh, it wouldn't be appropriate if I didn't address this thing of, of race. Um, I don't know why I said that. It has nothing to do with race. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, uh, we've been home in your Belinda, and there's this amazing trail, and we've been kind of running. And, you know, we used to bike on that trail a lot. It's felt a little bit different than before. So we're just running, and I'm sorry, Marsha and I are vaccinated, so we run without our masks off. But we're running, and then I can see every once in a while, 
there are people that will see us running on this trail and they'll go like this and go to the other side and then continue on their way. Exaggerated kind of uh, desires to avoid us. And then there are certain people that are like, oh, Asian people. Hey, hello. How are you? Good morning. They go out of their way to do that. And then I see a lot of older Asian people on the trail as well. And I saw this group of four, three older ladies uh, and, and an older man, and they're clearly Chinese. They clearly haven't been in this country for very long. And he's carrying around a stick. And he's wondering, oh man, all these attacks that I'm seeing against Asian people on the news, is that going to happen to me and my wife and, or three wives, whatever may be the case for him? And so he's carrying around the stick, and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, that stick is not going to help you, sir. If somebody comes and attacks you, it's just going to happen. You're just going to have to deal with that. You know? And there's a part of me, when I hear about that, I'm just like, oh man, as I'm running, I hope somebody tries to engage in some Asian hate against me. Maybe I'll be able to defend myself and thwart an attack that this older man is not going to be able to do. And, you know, um, actually, the thing that I wanted to, to kind of share is that in my life, I have experienced a lot of racism and xenophobia. Xenophobia, the fear of outsiders. I immigrated to this country when I was five years old. And when I came here... In 1985, remember August 5th, 1985 is when our family moved to the United States. It was okay to be a racist against Asian people and foreigners. It was okay. You know, like nowadays there's the hashtag stop Asian hate or stop AAPI hate. Um, back then it's, it's kind of like hashtag let's hate Asians. And so I remember the very first thing that we did as a family when we landed in America was the four of us, we went to some clinic and they injected us with a bunch of vaccines and said you guys are foreigners coming from a foreign place and you have these foreign diseases and you're a danger to us so we need to vaccinate you make sure that you don't get us sick that's one of my earliest memories of being in the United States and I remember getting enrolled into kindergarten and the first day that I'm in the playing yard I have no idea what I could have possibly done to offend but these five white boys they surrounded me in the schoolyard, and I knew enough to know, okay, these guys do not mean uh, very good things for me. They don't intend good things. They were going to jump me. I was in kindergarten. I was five years old, like my uh, little son, Joseph. They surrounded me, and I didn't speak any English at the time. I barely speak some now. Uh, but I remember just looking at them, and in my, in my Korean, I was just telling them, hey, white guys, hey, white guys, I come in peace. I wish you no harm. And then they kept on advancing. I don't know, maybe looking back now, they were just wanting to sh introduce themselves and shake my hand. Um, but I went over and I punched one in the face and I just took off. And that was kind of the first of a childhood filled with those types of experiences. You know, people doing the things of, hey, why don't you open your eyes? Being called chink, gook, nip, you know, these words, these um, curse words regarding my, my race. Um, the worst was I'm just walking down the street. People were like, Because it's funny to them. It wasn't funny to me. Those things were deeply painful. And I remember just getting into countless fights as well uh, because of race. I mean, it just was a very common thing. I'd be walking down the street. Somebody I don't know just says, chong, 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 chong. And I look, and in, at that time, because I was so filled with rage and anger, 
that was enough for me to push him. And then usually if they wanted a fight, they would push me back. And then it was on. You know, later on as I grew up, I was denied opportunities. You know, you hear this thing of, hey, go back to your country all the time. We don't want you taking our jobs. We don't want you taking our educational opportunities. Um, I remember when I was uh, playing sports, there would be this kind of understated racism of, hey, like, you actually jump pretty high for an Asian guy. Hey, you're pretty strong for an Asian guy. Or, you know, like when Jackie Chan became popular in America, everybody was really excited about Kung Fu. I was terrified that Jackie Chan became popular in America because after, right after that, after the first movie came out, Rumble in the Bronx, the next day at school, it's Jackie Chan! Jackie Chan! Go play on the baseball team, show up on the field. Usually the people on the other team would say, just pitch it straight down the middle, he can't even see the ball. Things like that. That was a common part of my experience. I remember applying to colleges as well. And I still hate Stanford to this day. But it's the only college in California where all the other top UCs, they would have 40% enrollment of Asian people. Stanford decides, I think 15% is good enough. And although my marks were in the top 25 percentile in terms of grades and SATs, it's hard for someone like me to get into a school like that. They have enough Asian people, Asian males in particular. I remember when I went to law school, I thought, you know what? My identity as just an Asian man is not good enough for me to feel accepted in America. There are things that I need to add on to my identity. There are things that I need to build on to it in order for me to feel accepted and feel like I can be recognized, feel like I can live here as an insider. So I studied really hard, tried to go to good schools. I became a lawyer and I said, surely if I'm a Berkeley educated lawyer, then people will accept me and they will give me recognition and give me the honor that I feel like I deserve. But I remember going through the interview process, trying to get jobs at law firms. And even back then, in the early 2000s, it was very common for me to hear from employers like, yeah, you know what though, like our, our firm is a, a litigation firm and we just feel like Asian people aren't aggressive enough. We just feel like you guys aren't aggressive enough to be able to really represent our client's interests in the courtroom. This is just a common part of my experience. And you can imagine how angry, how bitter, how resentful um, I might have become, having grown up with that kind of an experience. And I'm still bitter to this day. No, but thankfully, um, after about a year and a half of practicing law and making money and having all of these things that were supposed to make me happy, all these aspects of my identity characteristics that were going to make me happy, um, and still being miserable on the inside, thankfully the Lord revealed himself to me, and I began to understand the gospel. And, you know, for such a long period of my life, I tried to earn my way into creating an identity for myself, that the way that people viewed me and received me would match the way that I viewed myself, and I was unable to do it. And, you know, uh, the reason why I went to law school in the first place, and initially I wanted to work in public policy, I wanted to be in D.C., I wanted to work for social justice, that I could change the policies in the United States so that my children would not have to grow up in the same racist, unfair place that I grew up in. Um, 
But this, there's this reality, there's this greater spiritual reality that I had to realize. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And there was this process of healing and restoration that God took me on, helping me realize my true citizenship. I'm not Korean. I'm not American. Actually, I'm a citizen of heaven. And because of Christ, I'm not Asian. I'm actually one of the holy ones now. I'm a part of the race of the holy ones. That actually, I'm not this outsider, but I have been adopted back into the family of God, and I am simply a beloved child of God. And you know, I needed to go on this journey of realizing this thing about my identity because I thought growing up the U.S. was racist, but man, the racism in Thailand is just perfection. It's so bad there. I mean, it's worse than how things were in 1985. And so, you know, we here in the States, and we have these interactions with Thai people, and they'll just be blatantly racist. You know, it was interesting. Uh, when we first got to Thailand, we'd tell people, we're American, we're American. I remember this one lady just looked at me and said, look at your face. You're not American. And it just, like, had this, like, weird wound that I had from my childhood, like, ah, oh, I'm not American? And I had to kind of get over that. You know, there are people that we disciple that are minority hill tribe people that they are outright denied to their face job opportunities because they don't belong to the majority group, the Thai, ethnic Thai people. You know, I've even heard terrible things of women who are minority and hill tribe that are trafficked. And the Thai response is, well, that's what they're for. What do you expect? But, you know, the, the greatest kind of example that I saw of just grace uh, under tremendous amount of injustice and um, just racism is a friend of mine named Eric Guressa. He's actually somebody that we found um, in Thailand, in Chiang Rai. He's from Ghana. He's a, he's a black man. And actually, you know, the, the, the situation regarding race in America is not ideal. It's a terrible thing. And a lot of injustices need to be corrected. But I've never seen somebody endure racism like my friend Eric has had to endure racism in Thailand. So actually, because he is from an African nation that is not South African, he is not allowed to bring his wife and his children into the country. They all have to be on their separate visas. And it's very common for, uh, obviously, in terms of just relationships and opportunities, they're just not there. They'll just look at him straight in the face and assume, you're not a native English speaker, so it doesn't matter what your qualifications are. We're not going to let you teach in our schools. And he, he was sharing this thing of he, would, he got a job working, and he's been there for seven years, teaching in a public school. And the parents will always come up to him and say, hey, we don't understand. Our kids really like you. And he's like, oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. But we don't get it because you're black. I don't understand why our kids would like you if you're black. And he would just say, he, would, he, he just kind of laughs it off and graciously says, well, okay, uh, maybe it's because I'm a good human being and because I'm a good teacher that your kids like me. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't do it with just like, gritted teeth, angry and bitter. He's filled with just an amazing faith and an amazing grace. And, you know, the saddest thing is when we first met him, he came into our church and he sat all the way in the back with his arms crossed. And it took a while for us to build a relationship with him. 
get to know him, let him know that we loved him and cared for him, and that for us the race thing didn't matter at all. But his experience in Thai churches was that he would show up in the, the church services. He would go to a Thai church. Nobody would say hi. Nobody would want to even make eye contact with him or look at him. And there was this one larger Thai church that he found, and he started going there um, every Sunday. And when the people, the Thai Christians saw that he was coming regularly and that he would normally sit on the left side in the back, it wasn't just his row, but the row in front of him and the row behind him were completely empty. Nobody even wanted to be around him. And he expected that he was going to get the same kind of reaction from our church. But, you know, this man is, um, is a man whose identity is so set in the things of this earth, he's able to somehow, he's got this supernatural grace, the spiritual reality of who he is, so much more significant than the physical realities and the things that he experiences on this earth that he walks with just a faith and a hope and a joy that confounds our understanding in the natural. You know, the thing is, the thing that I've had to learn and that I'm continuing to learn through people like Eric and just in my own journey is that there is, there is a cost to that citizenship that I was talking about that citizenship in heaven. Actually, there's, there's only one way to get there. And it costs you everything. It costs you forsaking your own life and putting to death your old self. Uh, Romans 6, 5, is, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, surely, we shall certainly be united him united with him in a res resurrection like his. And the thing that, I'm, that I've had to learn and the thing that I'm continuing to learn is that baptism is not just an act of going into to water and, and doing it and everybody cheering. And it's wonderful to have baptism experiences, but it's symbolic of something. And it's symbolic of this idea that we come in our old selves and we decide we don't want to be our old selves anymore. And we put that completely to death underwater. And we say we're going to die with Christ. We're going to join him in his death that we might be able to rise again into his resurrection life. That is the only process by which we're able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Through many hardships, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And for many of us, like me, carrying the other aspects of my identity around with me and trying to bring those into the kingdom of heaven have proved to be pretty unfruitful. And I found that if, like Eric, I'm able to say, I'm going to die unto self. I'm going to die unto self. People hate me because I'm Asian. I don't care. Actually, that, I don't identify as Asian. I identify as a child of God. I identify as a son of God. And that reality that is in heaven already is my greatest ultimate reality. Revelation 2.17. It says, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with the new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives this. How many of you guys have nicknames? 
I think Stephen and Chelsea, maybe um, Nick and Karen know, but Marsha and I, we never call each other by our given names. We call each other Mouse. And it came from just this really stupid season in our lives before I started law school where we were just hanging out in our apartment, just newly wed, and we would just order Thai food, and we would watch uh, movies and TV shows. And there was this one particular scene in uh, the movie Last Emperor where this man puts a little mouse in his pocket. He's the emperor of China, and it's the one little rebellious thing that he has. And he says, please don't tell anybody about my mouse. And after that point, that's it. We, uh, we call each other mouse. And that nickname actually gives us this feeling of intimacy. And, you know, she actually gets mad at me when I say, hey, Marsha. She's like, are you mad at me? Why are you calling me that? Calling, call me mouse. We have those types of similar nicknames for each of our kids. So Hannah has a bunch of names. She's embarrassed. She's covering her eyes right now. Don't turn around and look at her. Uh, but we, we called her Winzy. For our son Isaiah, we call him Fozzy. For our son Micah, we call him Misku. For our youngest one, Joseph, we call him Hochi. Now, these are just kind of silly names. Why would we do that? But you know the thing is, like, as a parent, when you, and I, I'm glad to hear that the church is growing through birth, um, but when you're a parent, you go through this process of, we've got to come up with a name. We've got to come up with a name that's going to, like, define this person, the things that are our values. It's going to be what the world calls them. And it's an important aspect of identity that at the very beginning we feel like we're going to impart to our kids. But then, you know, so you name your kid Hannah, and then you see her and you're just like, oh my gosh, I love her so much more than the name Hannah represents. She's so beautiful, so precious, so cute. Just Hannah seems too formal. She looks like a whimsy to me. <laughs> Can you guys relate? Have you guys had relationships like that where you're like, no, the name that you have it just isn't good enough. And you know, the reality is that we were born with an identity that wasn't befitting of us. Actually, we were born into our fallen human state. We were cursed. And not only that, in, in Genesis, it says that the earth was cursed through us. That's what it means to be a human being. That's the identity that every single one of us, as soon as we come out of the womb, we're cursed, and we're a curse on this earth. It's not a surprise that there is no earthly leader, there is no earthly ideology, there's nothing that the earth can provide that is going to be able to undo this curse, that we're cursed, and that we are a curse to each other and this earth. But Jesus, seeing that and saying, I know that that's the case. I know that that's an aspect of their characteristic. I know they curse each other. And that this is an aspect of their physical, earthly reality. I'm not satisfied with that. They're more precious, more valuable than what that represents. So Jesus paid the ultimate price. He went to the cross, and the blessed one wasn't just cursed. Yes, he was cursed, but he became a curse. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And uh, I might get in trouble with Nick about my interpretation of that Revelation passage. Because there are people on both sides that say, well, no, what you're going to be imprinted with is a new name that Jesus is going to get for all of eternity. I buy that to a certain degree. Um, but I actually really like this idea that the one who was willing to be cursed so that he can call us blessed, the ones that took a bunch of lost people so that we might be found, the one who took a bunch of enemies and made us the friends of God, who took outcasts and made us the ultimate insiders in the family of God, that he just might have a name for you that you don't even know yet. And whatever you think you are and whatever the world thinks you are is much less significant than this identity that Christ wants to give you. Don't you want to live according to that reality? Don't you want to live according to that aspect of your identity? Now, as I kind of look out into the crowd, there's something that God put on my heart, um, that there might be people out here who, unlike my children, who knows what it's like to have a devoted parent, a devoted dad, who just wants to whisper sweet nothings and say, oh, you're my little sweetums. You're my sweetums, Pooh. You're my Winzy. You're my Hochi. You've never actually experienced that because that's the thing that is life-changing. Makes all the other things go away. Hey, you're not going to be a lawyer anywhere, Dan. That's fine. If you're Asian, you're going to be hate, hated and you're going to be bullied. It doesn't matter because of the way that you look at me, because of the way that you see me, because of how you make me feel. You are with me. There is nothing like it, friends. And if you haven't experienced that for yourself, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to leave it up to Nick um, in terms of how exactly that will look. But my friends, the reality is we have this marvelous king who is worth dying for. Thanks, Dan. I can't remember who said this, but um, one of the roles of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And uh, you've certainly done that this morning. I, uh, I just want to read a scripture in closing, before we, uh, before we respond in song, it's Paul talking to a mixed-race church. Um, and he's reminding them of his identity. And uh, he's telling them that, that taking on this new identity as children of God and not necessarily a race identity has actual consequences. Set aside these things such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. Don't lie to one another. Take off the human nature with its practices and put on the new nature which is renewed in knowledge by conforming it to the image of the one who created this. In this image, our new image, as sons and daughters of the living God, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Asian, Black, white, 
all things are in Christ and in Christ are all people. Father, I want to thank you for the reminder that whatever stamp this world tries to put on us, whatever identity we try to reach for to make ourselves feel better because of the pain that we've received, whatever we strive for to achieve in order to make ourselves feel worthy, we will never be as worthy as hearing your words which you spoke to us through your word. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. And I want to pray if there is anyone in the context of this gathering that does not know the security and the wholeness of being a child of the living God, I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would touch them now and that they would know that they would be able to have a secure and unshakable identity as a child of God. Spirit, minister to us as we respond to you in worship. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.